0: So we have finished the book of Philippians, and we are going to start the book of Daniel uh, three weeks from now. And so we're in this three-week in-between time, and so we are going to do a short series, a three-week, three Sunday series called "The Triumphant Power of Gospel Love," the triumphant power of gospel love, and. Phil and I have both read a small little green book called The Gospel by Ray Ortland. Ray Ortland is just a, a great pastor and great writer, and he's written this tiny little book called The Gospel. And, and in that book, listen to what he says in the introduction. Let's not assume that our churches are faithful to the gospel, let's examine whether they are. After all, every institution tends to produce its opposite. A church with the truth of the gospel in its theology can produce the opposite of the gospel in its practice. Let's don't miss that. A church with the truth of the gospel in its theology can produce the opposite of the gospel in its practice. The risen Lord said to one of his churches in the book of Revelation, Jesus said this to the church. He said, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The problem wasn't that what they believed doctrinally, but what they had become personally, and they did not even realize it. Yet it was obvious to the Lord. He says, I know your works. Therefore, they needed to go to Christ with a new humility, openness, and honesty. Ortlund says the test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. Its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice provides the real test of what the nature of the church's love and gospel-centeredness really is. And so he says gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. But there are no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. And so, um, he, he goes on to give few equations. And if you're writing notes right now, this would be a good time for you to write down uh, these three equations. Gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. Gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. So in other words, we believe all the right things, we, we dot our I's and we cross our T's as far as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the inerrancy of the Word, the um, uh, uh, soteriology, ecclesiology, all the ologies, we just get absolutely right. But if, we, if that doesn't transfer into a culture of love and grace and mercy and truth and holiness, then what are we? We are nothing but a group of what? Hypocrites. All right, the second equation is gospel culture minus gospel doctrine equals fragility. F R A G I L I T Y. Gospel culture minus gospel doctrine equals fragility. And so, We love one another, we care for each other, we provide meals to one another, we write cards, we send text messages, we're always interfacing over Facebook and we're caring and and, and we have a a significant amount of of physical affection, we hug one another and greet one another with a holy kiss and we have all of that going on, but if we don't have the doctrine to support it, the truth of the word, the truth of the gospel, the truth of, of God's sovereignty and His grace and His mercy and His holiness, but we just leave that to side, he's saying that we are a fragile group of people and that our house can be knocked down at any moment. Why? Because the foundation of our house is not laid. We have to have a foundation if we're going to have a strong house. And the doctrine is the foundation of the house. Okay, third. The third equation is gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals power. Gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals power. I think he goes on to use the Greek term dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. Right? It's it's powerful. When we believe all the truths about God's greatness and we transfer those truths into real love and excellent service to one another and to our community, region, and world, and we are known by our love, what we have is authentic spiritual power where Christ is going to build His church through this body. That's the vision for really why we're doing this three-week series. It is the love of God that we want to comprehend and the people of God who are possessed by that love and who then have a culture of love that then goes out to our world and cares for people the way that God in Christ has cared for us. That's where we're going with this series. Okay. So it's the transforming and the triumphant power of gospel love. Now, What we're going to do is we're going to do the God of love today, we're going to do the the heart of love next week, and then we're going to do a culture of love in week three. And we'll go to three different texts in order to do that. Now, before we open up our Bibles, this is what I want to tell you. Today's message is titled, The God of Love. And I want you to know that it's going to be less of a sermon and more of a meditation. Um, you remember in Philippians 4.8, when Paul tells the church, he says, whatever things are true, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are excellence, whatever things are of good repute, what does he say to do with those things? Think on those things, all right? Think on those things. And, and frankly, I feel like that's what the Lord really wants us to do in John 17. John 17. He wants us to think on the God of love. And so open your Bibles to John 17 where we will think, we will meditate, we will chew on the God of love. I will likely invite your interaction over the text this morning, so you can be prepared for those of you who are courageous enough to do so. The setting is the Passion Week in John chapter 17. Jesus and His disciples have gone into Jerusalem. Jesus has taught in the temple. He has come in with that triumphal entry. The Last Supper in the upper room has just been partaken of. They have celebrated the Passover meal together. He has then shared the the, the bread and the cup where He institutes the new covenant. He has taken His towel and gotten down on His knees and washed His disciples' nasty, dirty feet. And He says, I have come not to be served, but to serve. And as they are going to be moving from the upper room to the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays this amazing prayer that has been called the High Priestly Prayer. And I want you to know that of all the prayers in the Bible, of all the prayers that are popular, this is the most awesome, amazing, feeling like we're walking on holy ground prayer that you're going to read in the Bible because it gives us the most insight into the nature of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So let's walk on holy ground as we read the chapter and then hone in on verses 20 through 26. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, church, I don't know if you've ever asked the question, am I in the Bible? This next verse and verses, Jesus is praying for you. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am Let's pray. Father, there is a sense in which I feel like Isaiah. when You revealed Your glory to Him and He said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Father, as we have just beheld the intimate communion between You and Your beloved eternal Son, we have been able to to peer into the most dynamic, beautiful, eternal, and infinite relationship that exists. And our prayer, Father, is that in our awe of You, in our stupendous amazement at Your glory and Your love and the relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that You will draw us into deeper, sweeter, more joyful, lasting, full communion with You. Father, I I know that there are those who don't really have a strong desire for that. And I pray that in this Meditation, you will draw people to a strong desire for yourself. And for those who've known it and have turned away to earthly things and worldly things and have been distracted by life itself, I pray that you will renew in them a love for and passion for your glory. And Father, I pray that overall, You will help us to find our joy in Your eternal love that we might fulfill the very prayer request that Jesus made in this chapter. We pray in His name. Amen. So, in meditating on on this chapter and in particular verses 20 to 26 this is what i want you to know what i came away with okay the amazing love relationship that exists between god the father and god the son is transmitted to us through god the spirit now now this is theological but in chapters 14 15 and 16 do you know what the topic of conversation is the holy spirit exactly And so Jesus says that it's okay that I'm leaving, guys, because when I leave, I'm going to send to you my what? My helper, my spirit, my paraclete, and he's going to come alongside of you and he's going to come inside of you so that the life that you have now is actually going to be better when he comes because my power will be in him and you will know the comfort of His love, the encouragement and the power of His love so that you can walk in true spiritual fervency and power. And so so I'm saying this, is that the amazing love relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son that we see in this passage is transmitted to us through God the Spirit in such a way that we are called and equipped to be a people of overflowing love. We are called and equipped to be a people of overflowing love. Why? Because God's love for His Son, Jesus, is overflowing constantly. And that same love now is transmitted to us through the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus Christ, such that all that God's love has has for His Son is now possessed in us by the Holy Spirit so that we have what He has. Okay, so I want us, I want us to be able to see the love that exists between God the Father and God the Son, and I want to, to, for us to see how that love is transferred to us, and I want us to be able to walk in the power of that love. And so we're simply going to ask two questions, and we're going to, we're going to meditate right now on two questions, church. The first question is, what is the nature of the Son's relationship to the Father? What is the nature of the Son's relationship to the Father? Based on John 17, verses 20 to 26. And if you need to draw a little bit from, as you're, as you're observing from the previous 19 verses, that's okay, but I'm going to give you like 60 seconds or so for you to look at 20 to 26 and seek to answer that question at least partially, what is the nature of the son's relationship to the father? I'm going to give you some time right now to be able to meditate on that. For those of you who may be struggling to come up with an answer, let me give you the first part of a sentence. It is marked by, and then why don't you fill in the rest of the blank. It is marked by. Okay. Okay. Let's see if we have some, some involvement here. What is the nature of God the Son's relationship with God the Father? It is marked by... Abigail, let's we'll start with you. That's right. So Abigail says that it can be characterized as one. She said in... Uh, I can't remember what verse she cited. What verse was it, Abigail? Verse 22. Verse 22 that they may be one as we are one. Okay, that's an excellent observation. And so you can can write that however you like. The way I wrote it down was that the nature of their relationship is that it is marked by unity. It is marked by unity. We'll just stop there for a moment and meditate. All right. What is unity? It is the state of being one. That's what unity is. It's the state of being one. And and the the Son says to the Father, we are one. And I think that it, it compels us to ask the question, church, in what way is Jesus, the Son, one with His Father? In what way is Jesus one with His Father? What are they one in? They're one in motivation. Think about this. The Father and the Son have the same motive, and it is glory. They want glory, and they want us to share in that glory. They want to magnify the worth of their glory. They have one motive, glory, and they know that if we get to share in their glory, then we get a maximum amount of glory. Joy. I think this is one reason why the purpose of our church is to pursue the glory of God and joy of all people. And we know that that is primarily found in the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are one in motive. They are one... What else are they one in, church? The Father and the Son are one in... Yeah. They're one in their love for all those who would believe in them through the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ. Like he says, I don't pray for all those people in the world, but I pray for all those who will believe in me. The object of their love, they are one in. They love. The Father and the Son are unanimous in their love for all who will believe. What else are they one in? Let's see if we could get two or three more aspects of their oneness. They are. So so Jesus calls His Father, O righteous Father. Daniel, that shows us that the Son has a respect and a reverence for the character of His Father, doesn't He? He doesn't just say, Dad. He says, O righteous Father. What, what does it mean that He's righteous? It, it means that He is pure in His character from beginning to end. There is nothing unholy, nothing unrighteous, nothing wrong. Everything is right. Everything is good. Everything is pure. And He calls His dad, O oh, righteous Father. And then the Father we know believes that His Son is righteous because He accepted His Son's sacrifice on the cross. And there's no way He would have accepted it if His Son was un- unrighteous. See we can have one more. What, what, what other way that they are one? Perfect. Say it again. Perfectly. They are perfectly one. They are perfect one. Yes, there is, a, there is a, um, a union between the Father and the Son that is unblemished, unstained, unfettered. It is perfect. It is beautiful. It is sweet. There's only one moment in eternity past. And all of eternity future in which the Father and the Son did not enjoy perfect unity. When was that time? When He was on the cross. For about three hours from noon to three o'clock when the Father turned His back, as it were, on His own Son. So that you and I could know the unity and the harmony with the Father forever. We could go on and on with their oneness, with their unity, but I think that it is absolutely critical for us to understand that the Father and the Son are perfectly, righteously one together in a love relationship that is really, we can't understand it fully, but what we can understand is amazing. Okay? It is marked by unity. All right? What's the nature of the son's relationship to the father? Does anyone else have an observation to make? Mr. Seth, in their hate for sin, they absolutely are. As As a matter of fact, Seth, nothing says that the father and the son hates sin more than what happens to Jesus about 15 hours after he prays this prayer. God the Father is saying, "I hate sin." Jesus the Son is saying, "I hate sin so much that we're going to um, punish, we're going to punish sin." Father says, "I'm going to punish sin by punishing my Son on the cross." Good. Um, Andrew, did I see your? Did I see your hand? Yeah. That's right. All right. So it is marked by love. It's multiple places in this passage. Um, talks about the love. And I think um, if we can see, church, in verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I want us to meditate on a reality. As Christians, we believe in one God. Just one God. But our God is three persons. It's what we like to call our three-in-one God. Our triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now let's, let's consider this. If God was only singular and only one person, could we really say that God is Love. Because before the very beginning of the world, before creation, in all of eternity past, who would God be loving? Yeah, Himself. But God the Father in eternity past and God the Son and God the Spirit for all eternity before ever creation all loved one another in perfect, righteous, harmonious, wonderful love which tells us that God in His essence is a relational, communicative, caring God that we can see through this prayer is amazing. God didn't just say, well, I've got no love To share with anybody, I need to have an outlet for this. God says, no, we are three in one and we share this wonderful, righteous, holy, perfect, sweet love and we want to share it with others. That's very important because it distinguishes our God from every other God that exists on the planet. I want us to also see in that verse 23, the heart of love. And I, church, you've got to know that as a teacher and preacher, there are just certain things that, that are almost impossible to communicate clearly. But I want you to realize that what Jesus is praying for in verse 23 is that the quality, the power, the sweetness, the eternal nature of the love that exists between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus prays that we will experience. Um, for, etern- for all of eternity, future, Jesus is saying, I want them, and for us, I want the believers at Redeemer Church to know and experience the quality and the content of the love that you and I share with one another. It's enough to just um, overwhelm you emotionally. And what tips the, tips the scales is that in order to make that happen, Jesus leaves this prayer, is arrested by a bunch of thugs, is beaten, is ridiculed, and mocked, and essentially beaten to the last inch of his life, taken up to Golgotha and his hands are pierced with nails and his feet are pierced with nails and he bears the punishment that you and I deserve on the cross so that you and I can experience the unity and harmony and love and affection that he and the Father had from eternity past for eternity future so that we share in what they share forever. It doesn't get any better than that. And so what is the nature of the Son's relationship to the Father? It is marked by unity and it is marked by love. What else is it marked by? Yes, it is. I don't know who said it, but I heard the word example. Um, I wrote in my notes, it's marked by obedience, which I think is, uh, in, this, in this case, it's the same thing. You know, Jesus says, I, I fulfilled what you have given me to do. You sent me. You sent me. And, and by the Father sending the Son on a mission of love, Jesus then Fulfills every jot and tittle of God's righteous requirements. He honors his parents. He loves people skillfully. He cares for people. He obeys the law. He fulfills the law. He does everything that God's law. Demands He fulfills all of of the righteous requirements and all the way up to the cross. And so when someone says example, and I say it's marked by obedience, what is it marked by? Jesus' life is marked by a faithfulness to follow God's instructions. Like, I have completed, I have fulfilled everything that you have sent me to do, O Father. And so there, there is a relationship of obedience from the Son to the Father. And the son doesn't say, hey, wait a minute, I've got as much glory as you have. I've got as much honor as you have. I've, I've, I've existed from eternity past just like you have. I'm not going to go and do this thing. You go and do this thing. No, there is a relationship of respect and reverence that the son has for the father that he gladly obeys everything that his father calls him to do, even death on a cross. That's the nature of of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It's one of obedience. It is one of faithfully following every instruction that he gave. Let's tackle one more on the meditation. It is marked by glory. It is marked by glory. We said it's marked by unity. It is marked by love. It is marked by obedience. It's marked by Glory. Doesn't he say? Let's see, he says a a few times. Look at verse 22. He says, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we're one. Wow. And then look, he says in verse 24, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. When we ask the question, what is glory? What is God's glory? I think we can most theologically accurately say it it is the essence of who God is. That's glory. It's the essence of who God is. But we oftentimes around here say that it is, it is the beauty and excellence of His character and work. That's His glory. It is the beauty and like the, when we look upon God and we see the manifold perfections of his character, his attributes, his holiness, his wonder, we just stand in awe of how beautiful God is by what we see in, in the word and what we see in revelation and creation, and we're just like, God is beautiful. And then at the very same time, we say that he's excellent. We say he's excellent because there's nothing unrighteous about him. There's nothing unholy about him. Whatever God does, he does all the way. However God acts, He acts all the way. There is no half-heartedness in God. There is no milli mally kind of love about God. God's love is intense. God's holiness is intense. God's righteousness is intense. God's ways are intense because He does everything all the way. And so His, his character and His work are both beautiful and excellent, and that is His glory. Now, what John says, and if you, if you want to know the truth, Um, Jesus, in this prayer, affirms what John says in chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in verse 14 it says, The Word became what? And what did we behold? His glory. And then it describes His glory. And it says His glory was full of what? Grace, beauty, beauty, and what? Truth, excellence, righteousness, holiness. And so that's what I say. When, when we're putting our eyes on Christ, When we're reading through the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way through 21, and we read all the rest of the Gospels, what we are doing is beholding the glory of God in the person of Christ. And we're seeing grace and truth on every page. And church, the nature of the relationship that the Son has with the Father is a shared nature of eternal, Infinite glory. Okay. So that, that's the meditation on the son's relationship to the father. Now I think since we've done that plowing, we would just, want, I would just want to ask the question, what's the nature of the church's relationship with the son? What is the nature of the church's relationship with the son? as we see Jesus pray for it in this passage. So as not necessarily to add any additional thing here, because I think we can find it kind of wrapped up in the things that we've already said, let me just go ahead and tell you. Number one, He wants us to share in that unity. Jesus clearly says... I and the Father are one. We are one. We are one in desire, one in nature, one in glory, one in motive, one in love. We're one. And I want every person who is going to trust in me to experience that exact same unity. And church... I think it's good for us right now to just meditate on the reality that if you trust Jesus Christ, that for all eternity, for an infinity amount of time in eternity future, you are going to be utterly, intimately, eternally united to God in the same way that the Son is united to His Father. That's huge. What's the nature of the church's relationship to the Son? He wants us to share in glory. He wants us to share in that glory. Now, it makes us ask the question didn't the Lord say in Isaiah that I will not give my what? Glory to another? Well, no, now Jesus is here praying that we will share in His glory. This is the deal, so that we can understand this. God is saying, in Isaiah, I am not going to let people steal my glory. I'm not going to let people say, I want glory for myself, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to let Adam and Eve say, no, I'm not content with knowing God, I want to be God and I want to strip His glory and make it my own. That's what God is saying in Isaiah. And so now uh, Jesus is praying that they may may receive our glory, that they may participate in our glory. And this is the deal, is that when we participate in the glory of God, what we're doing is we're participating in His excellence and in His character and in His beauty and in His holiness. But all the while, we're not trying to steal it. We're trying to reflect it back to God. We're trying to show Him how awesome He is so that when you work tomorrow tomorrow, What you're trying to do is to reflect the beauty and the excellence of the God who has brought you to Himself. When you relate to your wife and to your husband and you care for him and care for her in a way that is loving and gracious, what are you trying to do? You're trying to reflect the glory of the excellent and righteous God that you serve. When when you are caring for someone who is poor or needy or giving money to the hungry or sliding money in the giving box for missions Sunday, what are you doing? You are the beauty and the excellence and the glory of the God who has saved you through the cross work of Jesus so we're not stealing glory we're getting to participate in glory and the reality is this church is there's going to be a sense in which whatever glory that we get to have in eternity we are offering it back to God as our spiritual act of worship He wants us to share in that love. So He wants us to share in that unity. He wants us to share in that glory. He wants us to share in that love. The the affection that exists between Father and Son is is the affection that the Son prays that we will also experience. And I think this may be the most important truth we need to consider right now. Because if you can grasp the desire that Jesus has for you to have an overflowing abundance of divine affection in your heart, in your mind, then nothing will prevent you from walking across the street to your neighbor. Nothing will prevent you for caring for a coworker who needs the Lord. Nothing will prevent you for writing a check to help somebody reach somebody else for Christ. Nothing will prevent you to do any act of love because you are overflowing with divine affection inside your heart because you possess it. Because Jesus has done everything possible to make it happen. So we must see that the relationship of love that exists between Father and Son is something that we now can possess, revel in, celebrate in, and then exude from our own lives. And then finally, He wants us to share in that obedience. He wants us to share in that obedience. Just as the Son obeyed the Father and fulfilled all righteousness, because we have trusted in the Son and we now possess the Spirit of the Son inside of us, church, we have the capacity, we have the ability to walk in righteousness just as the Son walked in righteousness. Like, Anthony, I'm not teaching perfectionism at all, but what I am teaching is exactly what Jesus just prayed for. Anthony, you have the ability to walk in holiness today. Mike, you have the ability to walk in righteousness today. You have the ability to obey God today because all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit so that you can walk in the power of His love and in the power of His righteousness. And so, He wants us to share in obedience because in sharing in obedience, who will see the uniqueness of who we are? Who who will see it? The world will. So that the world will see the nature of our lives and they will be in awe of what they see. Okay. Um, If you can get in a place where you just can close your eyes and bow your heads, I'm going to have us to just meditate on the nature of this God of love. Church, I'll just make one statement and I, will, I want you to just chew on it before we sing this song to our God. Your Christian life is not primarily about changing the way you live. Your Christian life is not primarily about changing the way you live. Your Christian life is primarily about knowing the God of love. And so are you communing with this God? Are you enjoying a sweet, precious, unified, glorified, loving relationship with the God who has sent His Son so that you can have the love of God overflowing into your heart and into your life. Listen, I'm not calling you to lifestyle change today. I'm not calling you to, to, to pray five minutes more. I'm not calling you to stop watching this or to stop doing that or stop using that language today. What I'm calling you to do is to behold the glory of our triune God and understand that He wants to know you. He wants to be in fellowship with you. He wants you to experience sweetness and unity and love and glory. He wants you to experience the fullness of Himself so that you can be prepared for all eternity as you participate in His excellence and His beauty forever. I call you today to be enamored by your God, to be in awe of your God. Worship Him. You know, doves was what poor people offered in the temple when they were making sacrifices because they really couldn't afford anything more. And the Father said out loud, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then later, Jesus and three of His disciples walk up on the top of a mountain And Jesus is lifted up and He shines brighter than the sun and His whiteness is whiter than anything they had ever seen and His glory is unmistakable and unbelievable. And the Father says again, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He loves his son in the meekness of identifying with sinners in his baptism. He loves his son in identifying with the majesty of his resplendent glory. But on the cross, the son cries out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And the answer really is so that I can love the folks at Redeemer Church the way that I love you at your baptism and the way that I love you in your transfiguration. My love belongs to them. My love that I love you with now possesses them. Praise the name of Christ.